Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we're going to direct our time and our attention there this morning. You know, there's a, a lot of days in our culture of recognition, aren't there? Um, I, I, I like that we live in a culture that's constantly recognizing something or someone. I like that we recognize specific moments in history or keep uh, historical figures or different groups of people. I, I love that that's part of our culture. I, I love our national holidays. I like our Hallmark holidays. And we've always had some Hallmark holidays. We've always had Valentine's Day. We've always had Mother's Day and Father's Day. And the list of Hallmark holidays keeps growing. Have you ever looked at a list of how many of these new holidays we have? It just, it's never ending, but I love it. You know, we have, we have Grandparents' Day. We have National Daughters' Day, National Sons' Day. We have Sweetest Day, which is kind of like Valentine's Day, but it's more about buying sugary candy for people. And we have, we have Bosses Day and Administrative Professionals Day and Teacher Appreciation Day and Clergy Appreciation Day. We have Polar Bear Plunge Day. We have National Weed Your Garden Day, <laughs> which I should probably do. But, but there are a lot of weirder ones as well. But the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church lands on the first Sunday of November... And it was put into effect a number of years ago uh, to raise awareness for the increasing violence, torture, death, uh, worship restrictions, public humiliation, and the social isolation that many, many Christians in our world experience today in hostile countries. And there are a lot of hostile nations in our world today. And you know, it's actually always been this way. From the beginning of Christianity, this has been part of the Christian story. In fact, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and oh, by the way, are you watching The Chosen? If you are not watching The Chosen, watch The Chosen. If, if you started it and then you fell off after a couple of episodes, please stick with it. But the season finale of, of season two is where Jesus finally presents the Sermon on the Mount, and oh, my goodness, we couldn't breathe it, they presented the Sermon on the Mount in such a beautiful way. You've got to see it. But in the famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In John 16, 33, Jesus told his disciples, listen, in this world you will have trouble. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, there's no bait and switch in Christianity. You don't sign up for one thing and then be shocked that it's something else, at least not when Jesus presented it. Um, there's no fine print. He, he led with the challenges and the price tag of what it means to follow him. Um, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, for most of us, these words are a metaphor. And they're a metaphor about 
denying ourselves and that idea of an internal dying to self. When I want to do something destructive or self-seeking, but for the sake of Christ, I embrace the cross and I die to that and I do something else. But for a lot of people, that's been literal. Uh, for the apostles, it was literal. Um, the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul were both executed under the Roman emperor Nero. Eleven of the original um, or, or 10 of the original 12 disciples, not counting Judas and, and John the Beloved who died of old age after being boiled in hot oil in an attempt to kill him, but, but 10 of the apostles were martyred for their faith. You know, it, it's hard to get an actual count on the number of martyrdoms in church history because they, they happen in strange places and people aren't necessarily keeping tabs and reporting it to the world. And, and sometimes when we try and figure out how many people have died for the faith, the numbers get weird because they sometimes count the deaths in wars that involve religious conflict. So they call all of those martyrdoms. So it's hard to get actual figures. But when we filter out any questionable numbers, we know that there still have been millions of people who have been executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and we know that today... That there are more than, we know this, more than 340 million Christians. And I think we have, what, about 320 million people that live in the United States. 340 million Christians live in parts of the world where they are experiencing severe levels of persecution. Now, the New Testament Greek word for persecution that I just read to you simply means to make someone run away. So that's essentially what it means. So it could be death. It could be the threat of torture. It could be the threat of isolation. It could be intimidation. But at its basic level, persecution is, is anything that makes a person back down and run away from the faith. And that's the goal of persecution. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to show you a video. And the video that I'm going to show you is actually going to be the the sermon for today. It's, it's, a, it's a long video. I'm going to show you an interview between Jenny Allen, who's a, a Bible teacher and leader, and um, she started a ministry called the If Gathering, and this is a powerful women's movement and women's event. In fact, um, Donna and some of our women's ministry leaders have gone through these, these events. But Jenny Allen interviews a man that they call Pastor X. They don't give his identity because he's one of the leaders of the underground church in Iran, and it's crazy, the, the global church today is growing fastest in the nation of Iran, of all places, than anywhere else in the world. And this is a powerful interview, and so I'm going to have you just kind of snuggle up and settle in and, and, and let this interview speak to you. But before we do, I want to read you... Um, I, I want to read you... Uh, an excerpt of a letter from the second century from a man named Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was second generation church leader, so right after the apostles. In fact, um, Ignatius was, uh, he, he, he was mentored by Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Beloved. So he was the very next wave of leadership, and he was a brilliant pastor. He was known for just being loving and winsome and brilliant. And he was in prison awaiting execution in the Roman Colosseum where Christians were sent out to be attacked by wild beasts. And, 
And he wrote a letter to his congregation. And I'm going to read a few snippets of this just to kind of bring us into the heart and soul of somebody who actually is facing that kind of a price tag for their faith in Jesus Christ. He writes, Please understand, I'm not giving you... Excuse me, wrong page. I do have one prayer request. Pray that I'll have strength in my soul and in my physical body so that I won't just give lip service to martyrdom, but will actually desire to go through with it. I don't want to merely call myself a Christian. I want to back it up when it counts. If I can back up my words, then I will be worthy of the name Christian. I'm writing letters to all the churches so I can clearly proclaim that I am totally willing to die for God. But I can only do that if you won't interfere. So I beg you, don't try to show me a kindness that I don't really want. Allow me to serve as food for those savage animals, for through them I can reach God. I like to think of myself as God's own wheat. Instead of interfering, it would be far better for you to urge those animals on. Let them become my tomb and completely devour me. I don't want to burden you with having to collect my remains after I have died. He's not seeking martyrdom. It's inevitable. So he's not wanting this. He's going to experience it. So this is the mindset of somebody who knows, um, I, I love Jesus enough to pay the ultimate price. Please understand, I'm not giving you orders as if I were Peter or Paul. They were apostles. I'm just a condemned criminal. They were free, but even at this very moment, I'm chained up like a slave. But I know if I suffer, I'll be freed by Jesus Christ, united with him, and I will be raised to eternal freedom. Oh, may I rejoice in those wild beasts awaiting me. I do pray they will be done with me very quickly. I hope they won't behave timidly like they sometimes do, lacking the fierceness even to touch the people thrown into the arena. I pray that the events in that arena... And the unseen forces of wickedness behind them will not conspire against me out of envy and prevent me from reaching Jesus Christ. Bring on the fire, bring on the cross, bring on the hordes of wild animals. Let them wrench my bones out of socket and mangle my limbs and grind up my whole body. Bring on all the hideous tortures from the devil. Just let me get to Jesus Christ. Nothing on this wide earth matters to me anymore. The kingdoms of this world are entirely meaningless. I am at a point where I would rather die for Jesus Christ than rule over the whole earth. He alone is the one I seek, the one who died for us. It is Jesus that I long for, the one who for our sake rose again from the dead. I cannot relate to anything even close to that. I want that heart, but I certainly can't relate to it. And yet there are people who today are facing these same kinds of risks. And the Bible calls them our brothers and sisters. So when the international church movement calls a day to pray and remember them, I think we've got to pause everything we're doing and remember sisters and brothers who love our same God, our same Savior, and yet at a level that... Um, is is unimaginable so um i, I want to cue up this video it's 18 minutes long so again it's a long video we're going to watch the video and then i'll pray and then we'll receive communion and um and we'll go out hopefully changed today from what we're about to hear so let's play this video with jenny allen and pastor x from iran
Throughout history, persecution has always grown the church. What if I told you that the fastest growing churches in the world are actually happening in the 10 most dangerous countries for a Christian to live? Number one on the list, Iran. When the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power over 40 years ago, Iranians saw the true face of radical Islam. Now, those mosques are empty. Why? God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. The Iranian people are meeting Jesus through dreams and visions and power encounters. And now there are an estimated one million believers in Iran alone. Men and women in the underground church are bringing the gospel to people who have experienced Jesus for themselves. This church movement has no bank account, no 501c3s, no centralized leadership, no denominations, no church buildings or seminaries. And if any one of them is caught, they could be executed, at the least in prison. And yet, it is exploding. It's currently being led by former prostitutes, drug lords, Islamic radicals, and many of them women. You're about to hear my interview with the pastor who catalyzed the disciple-making movement throughout the Middle East. This is his only interview, and he risked his life to do this for us, for you. Well, Pastor, I'm so honored to be sitting down with you, and I'm excited for so many people to get to hear your story. So let's start with how you met God. I was born in a Western country. At the age of nine, I came to Jesus through the wordless book, and I've been a follower of Jesus for many years, and very simple, nothing supernatural, just a simple prayer as a child, believing Jesus is Savior. When I was 16 years old, I left the church. I was so upset and jaded by church because I just felt like it was a click. It didn't have that community, so I tried to find community through friends, and my friends introduced me to drugs. And I started doing drugs when I was 16 years old and started selling drugs and doing a lot of things I thought would bring me happiness, but it just brought me complete depression. So let's talk about that comeback and how you really wanted Jesus again and you wanted to walk with him. I was at a party and someone OD'd in front of me and the Lord spoke to me and said, I didn't create you to destroy. And so very soon after that, I cleaned up my life and I started going back to church. And my life is basically about simple obedience. The key thing, Jenny, is simple obedience can change the whole trajectory of your life. And that's what happened to me. I know one of the, the reasons you do the work that you do that we're about to talk about is your wife and, and her love for God. And, and really, her story is incredible. Yes, my wife was a radical Muslim. At the age of three, she wore the burqa. At the age of five, started reading the Quran. At the age of nine, memorized the Quran. At the age of 13, was so in love with God that they took her out of school and put her in Islamic fundamentalist school. At the age of 17, she became an evangelist for Islam. And so she'd be the one who would be like the religious police in the country that she's in. At the age of 23, she had a personal heartbreak and tries to kill herself. And when she does this, her mom is diagnosed with MS. She told her mother, look, you're dying. I want to kill myself. Let's kill each other. So they made a suicide pact. So on a Thursday night, they kicked the father out, they kicked the sister out, and they're about to take sleeping pills and turn on the natural gas. So they turn on the TV and there's a Christian satellite broadcast. And the pastor said, my brothers and sisters, why do you want to kill yourself tonight? Jesus wants to change your life. And she was so taken back by that 
She's like, you know what? I'm going to call this program and prove to them that Jesus is dead and then kill myself. So I can be the first woman in front of Allah saying, I did everything you've asked me to do and you've done nothing for me. So they called the program and her mom speaks to the pastor. And after about 20 minutes, she comes to Christ. And my wife was furious. Like, how dare you blaspheme Muhammad, you idiot, you imbecile, you kofar, you infidel. And so she's about to kill herself. And her mom says, before you kill yourself, my last wish is that you talk to the pastor. So she said, fine. She talks to the pastor. And after two hours, the pastor could not convince her to come to Christ. So he said this. So you've served Allah all your life, and the fruit of it is that you're suicidal, depressed, and you want to kill yourself. Give Jesus one week, and if he doesn't do anything for you, go ahead and kill yourself. So my wife took the challenge, so she did this sinner's prayer. She said, I'll do this stupid prayer, then live on satellite with a gun, I will kill myself to prove their Jesus is dead. Amen. So she hangs up the phone, and at 5 a.m. in the morning, she hears her mom screaming, and she jumps up thinking the MS has hit her lungs and she sees that her mom was walking perfectly in the house. So they run to the hospital, they do a blood work and an MRI, and there's no MS in her mom's body. So they asked my wife, who'd you pray to? And she said, I didn't pray to anyone except Jesus. And so immediately she brings five people to Christ right there. <laughs> so the next week she calls the pastor and says, I was the girl that wanted to embarrass Jesus, but Jesus embarrassed me. Now I bring five people to Christ. What do I do with them? <laughs> And this was over a decade ago. Wow. So you were comfortable in a Western country. You had um, a good job. You had friends. You had a life. And, and something didn't feel right. So, so you all were married and, and had your future ahead. And you wanted to stay. That's correct. I built my life in a Western country. I had everything a person could dream of in a Western country. I had a house, a great paying job. I had cars. I had money. I had everything, but I wasn't happy. I bring my wife from the country she was in into this Western country, and I gave her the great life, the abundant life. And after two months, she comes up to me and says, I'm depressed. I'm like, how are you depressed? You came from a third world country, we're in a first world country. And she says, because the church here is under a satanic lullaby and I'm falling asleep. And every time I try to wake up, the lullaby goes faster. Let's go back to my country. And I was so shocked by that statement. So you leave everything and you go and and you begin to share Jesus in the Middle East. And so talk about that first time that that's going on and what's happening. When I first went into the country and all over the Middle East, we would say Jesus and eight out of 10 people will come to Christ right then and there. Jesus is coming in dreams, visions, and power encounters. He's making a mess of the country and we're just the cleanup crew. You have to realize, Jenny, this is the biggest revival happening in the Middle East since the Islamic conquest, and Jesus is going after these people in Muslim nations. Because when I look at a Muslim, I see a passionate person in love with God, but the wrong God. And so we have all these Saul to Paul experiences like my wife. Once she found out the real God was Christ, she's ready to die for him now. And that's what's happening in the Middle East. It's so amazing. And then persecution came, and very hard persecution came. And what happened was all of a sudden we were, we were in all these cities and then we started to lose the cities. We started losing the churches. We started losing leaders and members and I became very upset. I almost became depressed because all of my leaders are getting arrested. They're looking for me and I would read the book of Acts and I would say, Lord, persecution grows the church. Why is persecution killing the church? And finally the Lord answers me and he says, you made converts, not disciples. 
converts will run away from me in persecution. Disciples will die for me. And I said, Lord, what does that mean? And he said, look at your wife. And so I'm looking at her and he says, because she encountered me, she will die for me. You must give the word of God, but it must be sealed by the power of God. And so that's what we do right now. We take people on a journey of discipleship from the first moment I see them and we disciple them to Christ. And then we disciple them to leadership. What's the difference in a convert and a disciple? A convert basically knows Jesus as savior, but not as king. A disciple first knows that Jesus is king and then savior because when you know he's king and he's the only one who's leading you, then you're willing to die for him because you trust him, even in the worst situation. It means a change of allegiance. That's what's so simple and yet so obvious. Someone who has an allegiance to Christ, it shines, it screams. It's not about theology. It's about following Jesus, denying yourself, putting yourself up on the cross. But why would you do that? Because you trust God, because you've pledged your allegiance to him. Are there denominations, divisions in the underground church? In the countries we're in, no, they're not because it's still very infantile. There's no denominations, no divisions, you know, persecution keeps you clean. When you're in persecution, it makes you focus on the main thing, which is to bring people into Jesus, not theology. This is so backwards. This is so backwards from how the West lives. That's right. <laughs> but if you look in the gospel, Jesus didn't chase anyone. And then I'll make it worse, Jenny. He actually made it harder to follow him. Imagine the rich young ruler, he's coming saying, Look, what do I have to do to follow you? I've done everything you've asked, or I've done everything that the Torah says. And then what does Jesus say to him? Sell everything and follow me. That actually makes it harder. I know if I had a prophetic word and I said that to someone and they walked away, I probably would have run after them and been, okay, let's start with 10%. Let's start with a little and move up there. What did Jesus do? He let them walk away. Following Jesus is the hardest thing that we're gonna do. Dying to ourselves every day is very hard. This is why in the West, some people think wearing a mask is persecution. When you look in the church in the West, there has to be something more than just going to church on Sundays. There has to be something more. Walking with Jesus is supposed to be exciting, not mundane, repetitive, boring. When you read the Bible, that's definitely not the feeling you get when you read the New Testament. So I know there was something more. There was something in my heart that says there has to be more. Describe what you're hearing in the stories of people that are truly encountering Jesus in a vision or dream. Are these similar? I was just thinking of this one time I was in this city and it was out in no man's land. And one of my leaders is like, you have to hear the story. So we go there and this man, he basically lives on dirt. He has this mud hut. There's no satellite. There's no internet, no electricity, no gas. And then he says this to me, Jenny, a man wearing all white comes to my house every night and he tells me to write these things down. And so I said to him, may I see your notebook? And so I open his notebook and I go to page one and it says this, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Jenny, he had the whole book of John in his notebook. Jesus came every night to his house and he wrote the whole book of John. And the first thing I thought, Jenny, was like, can you pray for me? Whatever you're doing to have Jesus come and see you, I would love him to see me. Once again, isn't that what he said? Blessed are those who haven't seen him. But Jesus is coming. He's coming for these people. He's coming in mysterious ways, even to the point where he's giving people parts of the Bible. That's crazy. You have to realize that we have to let God bring people to Jesus because when God does it, it's always supernatural. I want to talk about the leaders 
that are leading this movement because most of you are very unsuspecting. <laughs> you are not seminary trained. You did not um, grow up in a mission agency and got sent. You, you all came from rough backgrounds. Talk about some of the leaders in the church and, and their backgrounds. When I met my wife, she already had 250 people, 25 house churches in five cities as a woman in this country. We have to realize that women have a place in the kingdom. This is not about being a women's movement more than it is empowering women to rise up to the great call that they have, like the Esther call that Esther had or Deborah's call. Women are leaders. And one of the people we do have on the team is an ex-prostitute. She's had a very hard life and she became a prostitute, but she had a power encounter with Christ and her heart was actually other prostitutes. And so she's been leading other prostitutes to Jesus. And like I said, when we look in Genesis, man and woman together is a complete picture of God. That's how it should be in the kingdom and should also be in the church. Men and women together is a complete picture of God, and God is after the family, right? So women definitely have a place in this. Do you fear death? Of course, who doesn't? I still have fears, I still have ups and downs, I still doubt all that happens, but it's just our faith. You just have to keep having a childlike faith, a simple faith. I do believe that there has been a hopelessness that people are tired of and they want something different. And what your part of the world is doing for us, and just to tell you personally where this came from for me, why we're sitting here, is because I watched Sheep Among Wolves. And it was the most impactful thing I did in the last year, that I sat in the comfort of my house, quarantined, and I turned on the story of the church exploding in the most dark and difficult part of the world. And I wanted that for us. And I pray that we would learn from what is happening over there. I pray we would believe God like you believe God. I pray we would have a willingness to, to lay down comfort and to do whatever is needed to follow Jesus. So you've been a part of seeing over a million people come to Christ in your life. So what do we do? We plan for it. We go back to our radical roots. If you look at the word radical, it means going back to your roots. And if we want to be a radical church, we need to get back to the roots. And where do we see that? In the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see a house church network with a corporate expression. And that's what we need to go back to because when hundreds and thousands of people come to Jesus, there's not enough buildings, but definitely, Jenny, there's enough houses. Let's say that you had a child that, that grew up in America and wanted to stay. What would you tell them to do? How would you tell them to live practically? I would tell them to have a lifestyle of engaging the lost, showing that you care. We go to our stores, we go to discount stores, we go to clothing stores, and we don't even engage anyone. It's like we're asleep. We're sleepwalking. We're like zombies. And then all of a sudden it comes Easter or Christmas. Okay, let's go talk to some unbeliever and bring them to church. Just bring them to church. The whole problem with the Western model is come and see. Because that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, go and find. We don't even see a come and see model. It's all about going and finding the lost, going where they are. And so that's what I would tell my child is every day, I want you to meet at least five people new a day. And you say that now and you think it's so hard, but it's not. Don't you go to the supermarket? Don't you go to the gas station? Don't you go to the dry cleaners? Of course. So engage them. Go to your local coffee shop. Do you even know their names? Probably not, especially if they don't have a badge on their shirt saying what it is because we don't engage people anymore. Everybody listening to you right now 
is saying, I don't want to live under that lullaby. I want to live the life that Jesus has called me to. What does that look like for us? I think the biggest thing the Western church has to realize is that evangelism and discipleship is not an event, but a lifestyle. We should be engaging the lost. There's so many places in the West where there's self-checkout lines, or when you go to the gas station, you put your credit card in, and you don't even walk in, or even when you go to your local coffee shop, you use an app, and you don't even walk in and just get your coffee and leave. Are you really a light in that moment? Are you really a city on a hill in that moment? And that's the biggest problem that we see in the West. Everyone wants to run home and watch Netflix. Why? I don't understand it. We don't even engage anyone. Another challenge I guess I could say to the Western churches, look at your contact list. What's the percentage of unbeliever to believer on it? I promise you it's 90% believer, 10% unbeliever. Is that really what Jesus wanted? Jesus hung out with sinners, but the Western church hangs out with itself. That's why it's a club. And this is why there's no community. Tell the Western church why they shouldn't live afraid. They shouldn't live afraid because he who's inside of you is greater than he who's in the world. This is why you need to experience Jesus, mind, body, and soul. This is why you have to hear his voice. When someone puts a gun to your head, what do you really believe in at that moment? Everything becomes real in that second or when they come after you, or when they want to do evil things to you. How is it, Jenny, that it says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he went on the cross? How much do you believe in the resurrection? This is our faith. We believe in the resurrection, that there's death before life, but we have no problem with death because it's the gateway to life. It is the door to life. Why don't you all stand with me? There are some beautiful, amazing, heroic people in the world, aren't there? Uh, we're exposed to some pretty incredible people here at Grace Church when we think through the list of missionaries that we support, of ministers that we give to and work with, and then hearing stories like that, it's just, it's just unbelievable. It's, um, it's inspiring, and I know it's overwhelming, but, but being overwhelmed is okay as long as it takes us to the right source. And he said it perfectly at the end. He said, he said it's worth it. He said all of this is the gateway to life. If anyone's new or you're new to Christianity or faith and you're wondering, why are we talking about dying and this extreme stuff? What's the point of all of that? The point of all of that is life. That the Christian message is that God himself has stepped into human history to set the world right, to bring human hearts home and alive. And it's through following Jesus that we find everything that we were created to be and do and experience. And it's, it's the treasure that the Bible calls like a treasure hidden in the field that's worth any price we have to pay to find it. And so this morning, I want to pray for the persecuted church. But when you hear something like this, you realize, wow, more than doing a little prayer for the persecuted church, we need them to pray for us. Um, I don't want to live under a lullaby. I don't want to live deceived. We probably watch way too much Netflix. Um, I want to care more and give more and do more. And I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to be ashamed when, when the, the roll call comes and I give an account of my life and our church and what we do. And, and, and you know what communion is? So take those communion elements, if you would, and peel back that top layer and, and get the, the little wafer handy. Communion is daylight savings. Communion is a reset back to 
what matters most. It's a reset back to what Jesus did on the cross. He talked about being radical, going back to your roots. Communion brings us back to the fact that Jesus gave his body for you and for me, that he poured out his life, which we symbolize through the juice, um, the cup. He poured his life out for us so that we could live. So I'm gonna have the worship team um, lead us in just a minute or two of singing. And, and on your own, when you're ready as they sing, you can take the bread, you can take the cup, and make this just a special reset, renewal moment between you and Jesus. And then I'll come up and I'll close our morning with this, a word of prayer for the church. Okay, let's sing this together. Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all From beginning to the end It will always be, it's always been you, Jesus Jesus, nothing else
for a movement led by primarily women reaching young people who are having churches in their cars stopping at stoplights to swap podcasts and CDs so they can worship in these mobile churches in their cars. Jesus, thank you for doing this amazing, unimaginable work in the middle of unimaginable uh, trauma and and horror. And so we don't romanticize it and, and... and we don't deny it, Lord, it's, it's staggering to imagine and to consider. And I pray for them today, and we pray for them today, that you pour strength and power and grace and just pour gasoline on the, those fires of revival that are happening in that part of the world and in all parts of the world. And wherever there's persecution, Lord, whether it's, it's more overt like there or like it's happening in Afghanistan right now, whether it's a political... Um, uh, coldness and, and different kind of persecution like in China, whether it's, um, whether it's the, the minor intimidation that we feel to be vocal about our faith because of cultural um, opinions. Lord, at whatever level people are being tempted to run or flee, bring boldness and courage and faith and just build up your church, Jesus. You promised to build it and you said that you would build a church that the gates of hell would not be able to stand against. So bless your church today. And I want to say one final prayer today because I love how in this interview, when his wife prayed to give her life to Jesus, she didn't even mean it. It was a test. And I love that, that God took her up on the test. And if there's anyone watching online or if you're visiting here with a friend and maybe you're not even sure about all of this, I would just say, if that is real, let's put it to the test. And the simple prayer of Jesus, I give you my life. If you're real, invade my world. And then see what he would do. Because if there's no God, if this is just, if this is just making us feel better and it's, it's just a myth, then there's nothing to be afraid of. But, but if God is real, then it's certainly worth saying, hey, I, I need to know. And so I'm inviting an encounter and I'm going to give you my life. And so, Jesus, we do that today. Whether it's the first time or whether we've, we've been following you for decades, we give you our life. And we want your reality to invade our world. So, God, thank you again. Bless each person here. And then Calvary, as they move into their service here in a few minutes, be with them. Amen.